You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tenakotu Katoa, ko Liam Henson Toku Ingawa. No my Hari Mai Kita Waya Mo Tenera. Kiora, welcome to the Wire for Ramade Friday. I'm your host, Liam, and in the studio with me today is our producer David Williams. How are you going today, David? Kiora Liam, it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. All good. Efeakine, coming up on the show today, I have had a chat with City Councilor Pipakum about the upcoming mayoral elections and the transport emissions reduction plan on our regular city councilling segment. I've also had a chat with Auckland Action Poverty Group's Brooke Stanley Powell about sanctions placed on those receiving welfare help. And finally, I had a chat to Michelle Lloyd from Stats New Zealand about heightened rates of acidity in New Zealand's water. And I speak to Anna DeRoe from animal charity SAFE regarding the proposal to redevelop the Manukau Greyhound Racing Track. I also talked to University of Auckland lecturer Timothy Welch about the environmental impact of cruise ships. We would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, so please get in touch. Tukupatuhimai, you can text us on 5395, or Waiamairane, give us a call in studio on 30093879. Also, after the show, Kawe e wareware e ahi ana koto, te fakarongo ki ene korero ano he pakiare, roki roki ma ranga i te pu tukutuku. You can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website, 95BFM.com. Let's get into the show. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. Auckland's mayoral elections are getting closer and closer and the beliefs of some candidates have been called into question by commentators. Many have pointed out candidates who have links to conspiracy groups, and others have criticised the apology of larger candidates such as Viv Beck. I had a chat with City Councillor Pippa Coombe about her take on the candidates, as well as her thoughts on the transport emissions reduction pathway, first into the mayors. So, mayoral elections are continuing to get closer and closer, and we've been seeing more and more controversy around the candidates' policies and actions. Firstly, why are generally anti-government, anti-mask and anti-vax folks running for these local elections? Well, that's a bit of an interesting phenomena that there's been quite a lot of candidates put their hand up at the last minute, and it seems to be that they are aligned um, with say, groups like Voices for Freedom and Destiny Church. Um, I think there's still a bit more research to do on some of these candidates, but I definitely had my own run-in with one of them on Tuesday at a Meet the Candidates event um, where they they um, came a lot. One of the candidates came along who's standing as rocks a vote, um, but it was very clear that um, his policies have got nothing to do with... Um, what the Rock the Vote movement is about, which is, as you might know, it's um, that's a movement that came from America to get the youth vote out. Um, but we haven't, you know, we're still just waiting to see what their exact policies are and what the platform is that they're standing on. Um, but at the Meet the Candidates, so definitely um, 
show some of their true colours. Do we think that this is a part of Brian Tamaki's recent announcement that he is attempting to form his own umbrella party of anti-vax, anti-mandate political people? Yeah, I don't know all of the connections yet. I know that the Rock the Vote candidates are aligned with Voices for Freedom, um, so I'm not sure if they come under the umbrella of Destiny Church as, as well, but I think they do share similar views around being anti-mask, anti-government, um, bit of climate change denial in there too. Do you think that this is something that we need to be worried about, these new candidates, or is it more of a aspect that shouldn't be too much stress for the actual candidates? Well, I think it is a real worry. Like I was talking to some parents last night who were just concerned that similar candidates standing for school of um, trustee elections, you know, you don't have a lot of information to go on. Um, if you're trying to do some research on a candidate, you just might not know what their their true colours are. Um, so it just highlights really the importance of, of doing research about who's putting their name up and who's wanting to stand. And, you know, we're going to see more and more information that's going to go online to help with, with voters learn about candidates. I'm just trying to complete one of the surveys today that's for... Um, Spin-off. We've also seen quite a big storm around Viv Beck this week with her openly coming out against co-governance between Modi and yeah. the Crown. What does this say about her as a candidate? Yeah, I was really sad to see that positioning as if opposing co-governance is a good thing. And I know she's trying to kind of tap into the sentiment around three waters, but, you know, co-governance is a very broad, you know, wraps in a whole lot of partnership obligations that we have as treaty partners. And just for example, I'm co-chair of the Haraki Gulf Forum, and that's been a really transformational um, step that we took to adopt co-chairs. And then if you think of the Tupunga Monga Authority as well, that operates as a co-governance entity, and they've been doing some great work. So I really think it's a bit of a dog whistle policy rather than having been thought through very well, um, especially when you think about the role of the mayor and the role of council. The interesting thing about this position is the fact that it has pretty much been switched over with her just a few weeks ago being for co-governance. Do you think that this could be a strategy of hers rather than a genuine policy belief? Yeah, I think I think Viv is a thoughtful person and she's, she understands how local government works. So, yeah, I was very surprised that she has put this forward. And I just wonder if it's come from people who are advising her who've got different um, agendas than perhaps she does. And they're using her as, as, you know, to really be take a platform that's very negative and very destructive. So... Yeah, I, if I was there, I totally wouldn't have gone there with that messaging. I'd also just like to quickly get your take on the new transport emissions reduction plan that came out about a week or two ago. What effects do you think that this is going to have on Auckland commuters? Well, it's it's a very exciting piece of work. It's actually a pathway rather than a plan, and implementation planning will come out of it. But what it's saying is if we want to achieve 64% emissions reduction by 2030, we have to put ourselves on a pathway to get there. Um, and that's got to be about focusing on transport. 
And a lot of it is already underway when you think about improving bus services, electrifying the, the ferry, ferry and bus fleet, improving walking and cycling options. That's all part of the pathway. And in this document, um, it, it really is very bold and it, it says, you know, it, it's going to be difficult, but it's achievable. And this is what we need to do. With free public transport being such a large topic within the mayoral race right now, how could the funds that are being placed into the reduction pathway be balanced with the lost funds of free public transport? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan for free, free public transport. Um, targeted at specific groups and I think there's evidence to show that that will increase bus patronage but it's got to be tied in with the efficiency and, and frequency of bus services so I, you know, I think it all works together um, but it's just one part of the pathway, I mean a, a massive bit of it is just going to get people take it, not taking the car for trips that are under like two kilometres that can easily be walked or cycled um, so that's you know that, that's what Aucklanders need to start doing if we're ever going to get to our emissions target. That was City Councillor Pippa Coombe talking about the transport emissions reduction pathway as well as the upcoming mayoral election. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95 BFM. We're going to go to a couple of quick tracks now. This is It's Oh So Quiet by Godobjerk. So quiet. 
I got hit. The stone was taken. This is it! Till it's over and then. It's nice and quiet. Shh, shh. But soon again. Shh, shh. Starts another big riot.
old times sake, yes or no, would you like to be leader of the National Party at some point? No, I'm just focused on what I'm doing. I'm one of those people that do it day by day, job by job. I'll save this clip and come back to it in five or ten years. We'll see how it's aged. The Wire. The lease for the Monaco Greyhound racing track is, expires at the end of this year. Auckland Council is currently taking submissions regarding a proposal of turning it into an athletics and track and field facility. Animal charity SAFE says it supports the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to turn the facility into something for every Aucklander. I spoke to campaign manager Anna DeRoe regarding SAFE's position on the proposal. Is SAFE has called this a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Why would you say that? I guess I would say that because the Greyhound Racing Club's lease comes up for renewal in December. If that lease is renewed, um, there'll be a Greyhound Racing track there for the next 33 years. Uh, so this really is quite a big opportunity to, to provide a community-focused facility um, on land previously occupied by Greyhound Racing. Um, so athletics track and a field facility, indoor courts, all things that could provide far greater benefit to the community. You mentioned that greyhound racing isn't particularly safe for greyhounds. What kind of harm does it usually do? Yeah, so racing greyhounds puts dogs at serious risk of injuries, fractures and death. Hundreds of dogs are injured every single year through greyhound racing. Many uh, lose their lives on the track. Do they get specific kinds of injuries? Yeah, you're looking at um, fractured hocks, uh, torn gracilis muscles. There's a wide range of injuries that can happen. There's been a few government reviews into um, the safety of greyhound racing and basically all of the reviews have found that greyhound racing is inherently dangerous. There's always going to be injuries when you're racing greyhounds. Greyhound racing industry isn't going anywhere anytime soon, but are you worried that if this track is closed down, races will just go somewhere else, perhaps somewhere even a bit less safe? Yeah, well, I would say just to provide some context that um, last year uh, Grant Robertson put the greyhound um, racing industry formally on notice pending changes to um, animal welfare generally, transparency of activities and data recording. So unless there's um, big changes in those areas, I would say that the future of greyhound racing is actually quite uncertain at the moment. You mentioned that this may have an impact on gambling or problem gambling in New Zealand. Why would you say that? Yeah, so it's estimated that up to 30% of TAB customers have a problem with gambling and dog racing, among other activities, is considered quite high-risk gambling. There are concerns there that it's actually um, causing harm in the community. How confident are you about the proposal? That, that it will go towards an athletics track? Yes. I'd say that there's strong uh, support already in the community. Um, so in an earlier draft plan, uh, 750 people provided feedback um, to the council and many of them were very enthusiastic about an athletics track and having a more welcoming space for local families. Uh, so that's now been opened up to the wider Auckland region and I think this, you know, this is a fantastic opportunity for people to have their say um, and have something that puts family and community ahead of gambling and animal cruelty. Uh, so we would encourage that anyone in Auckland um, to agree to this to make a submission on that draft plan. What should people do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, put through a submission. Uh, you would need to register, but it only takes a minute. Uh, it's a very easy process. And, um, yeah, as I say, like the, the plan get, that gets put forward now could make a difference to the next 33 years. So um, it really is a big opportunity. Feel free to reach out to SAFE if anybody has any questions about this. That was SAFE's Anna DeRoe regarding the proposal to redevelop a Manico Greyhound racing track. We'll be back after a break. What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. 
Okay, what about treasure trunks and six? What does that even mean? Shit, you're useless. Don't you know anything? I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club, there's... The Updo's live, followed by Shea Fu and Chip Matthews. And tomorrow... Brucey Jordan live, followed by Kilimanjaro and Grantis. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Wow, wow. Music's everywhere. It's like a cloud of art. Here at 95BFM, we've sucked up some of the best contemporary bangers, bottled them and chucked them into a special Spotify playlist just for you. The August playlist has landed, packed with the goodness of Julia Jacklin, The Beths, Eden Burns, Faze the Days, Laura Jean, The Pleasure Magenta and much more. Follow 95BFM on Spotify for our monthly Spotify playlist and stay au fait. Off to the shops with a hop, skip and jump to seize the day.
It's fucked. Yeah, it is. The Wire. Statistics New Zealand has recently put out a report into their updated ocean acidification indicator. This data has come from a partnership with the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, as well as their New Zealand Ocean Acidification Observing Network. The data provider said that there has been a decrease in the water's pH level, meaning seawater has undergone more absorption of carbon dioxide. As the rate of greenhouse gas emissions have continued to rise due to the climate crisis, more of our water has become affected, leading to the risk of losing certain sea life. To learn more, I had a chat to Michelle Lloyd, the Senior Manager of Environmental and Agricultural Statistics at StatsNZ, about their report. She first told me exactly how much acidity and water levels have increased between 1998 and 2020. The StatsNZ indicator on ocean acidification found that ocean acidity had increased 8.6% between 1998 and 2020. What makes acidity levels in New Zealand waters change over time? Seawater absorbs carbon dioxide carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and we see increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the oceans act as a sink for these greenhouse gas emissions but when the um, oceans and the seawater absorb carbon dioxide you get an increase in the acidity of our oceans. Are there any health effects that this can have on swimmers? StatsNZ indicator does not uh, inform on any human health impacts for swimmers in the ocean, no. And how can this affect sea life? Ocean acidification may cause widespread harm to sea life and the ecosystems in our coastal waters and oceans. Acidification affects the shell-building ability of many of our ocean species. It weakens it. So, for example, Species that are particularly affected are plankton, which form the basis of the food chain. Uh, crustaceans, for example, crabs, crayfish, shrimp and krill. Tinner and mollusks, in particular mussels and power, um, including the green-lipped mussel, which we um, harvest in New Zealand for Kaimoana and for customary purposes and recreation. So the ocean acidification affects the ability for these species to form shells. And if that's the case, then that is going to affect their survival, their growth, and the reproduction of these species. Is this something that's human-caused or a natural occurrence? There's a very strong human component uh, to the increase in ocean acidity driven, driven by greenhouse gas emissions, particularly carbon dioxide. Are these higher acidity rates something that we should be concerned about? Yes, they are. The Ministry for the Environment recently published a national climate risk assessment for New Zealand. And in that assessment, ocean acidification was ranked as the most serious human-based threat to New Zealand's marine habitats. And it was listed as a priority risk for the natural environment. So yes, we should be concerned. That was Michelle Lloyd from StatsNZ chatting about acidity in New Zealand's water. We are going to go to a quick couple of chat, quick couple of tracks right now. This is Glider by Japanese Breakfast. Come in to me, 
watching 24 hours of rubbish. He got butane, he got plastic bags, his eyes are going square. Oh yeah, he no raver, just anti-social. He not going to cut his hair. Hey, dress says incorrectly, now I'm told him 17. He not need enough. Hey, dress says incorrectly, now I'm told him 17. That was Jubilee by Blur. New Zealand has seen a return of cruise ships for the first time in two years. The tourism industry is happy to see the return. However, these vessels have a terrible impact on surrounding environments. I spoke to the to University of Auckland lecturer Timothy Welch about the kind of impacts cruise ships are having on surrounding environments. What are some of the most problematic aspects of cruise ships? Well, there's a pretty long list, but the ones that come to the top are the amount of CO2 emissions that they produce, the amount of sulfur that's produced through combustion of their massive engines, uh, and the amount of particulate matter, or PMs, uh, that are produced also uh, through the uh, engines on, on any cruise ship. What kind of an impact is that having on the surrounding environments? Well, there's a lot of different levels of impact. So obviously, globally, the CO2 emissions are problematic. Uh, for a cruise ship, it's estimated that per passenger mile, uh, CO2 emissions are about twice that of even a long-haul uh, airline flight. So there's already big emissions there when we're trying to reduce our, our current carbon footprint by a significant amount. The PMs or particulate matter emissions can have a really big localized effect. So anybody with asthma or a heart condition uh, can be severely impacted by breathing in those emissions, which will lodge in lung tissue and be carried in the bloodstream. And they also have some long-term implications for health as well. And then sulfur 
is usually scrubbed out of the emissions process by uh, smokestack scrubbers on cruise ships, but they collect all those all that sulfur and then it gets dumped in the oceans, which can have a huge impact on marine life. Do you think New Zealand and the world is too reliant on cruise ship passengers for tourist numbers? I don't think we have that big a reliance on them. I think we kind of talk a lot about them because they're very visible. But in terms of their impact on the overall economy, it's fairly small. Um, It's not zero, but when we look at the overall tourist spending, especially for international tourism, at the level of about $17 billion, uh, the spending from cruise ship passengers comes in at about $300 million a year. So it's only about 2% of total international tourism spending that occurs within New Zealand. Cruise ships probably aren't going anywhere anytime soon. What kind of action would you like to see to limit the damage that cruise ships have on the environment? Well, the biggest thing we can do, at least at a local level, uh, and the process already started, but we should really think about speeding it up, is allowing cruise ships to use shore power. That's where we plug cruise ships into the power grid locally, so they don't have to have their engines going the entire time they're at port. That'll keep all of those localized emissions um, with the ship, since it won't be running while it's docked there. Um, Beyond that, we need stronger international standards. So all the cruise ship lines have their own kind of emission reduction plans, but there's no force to them. There's no authority on uh, banning a cruise ship if it fails to meet a guideline, et cetera. So we need stricter international standards that will actually hold cruise lines accountable for reducing emissions. You mentioned earlier on that cruise ships don't really have a massive impact on the world's tourism market, but do you think we should maybe pivot away from them? Um, I mean, we should pivot away from the cruise ship stock we currently have. Uh, Kind of the startling figure is that there are 323 uh, cruise ships in the global fleet, but that the emissions that come from those cruise ships are equivalent to about 323 million cars running daily um, with only about 500,000 passenger capacity. That's like each each passenger having 600 cars that they drive each day. Um, So moving more rapidly towards a cleaner cruise ship, ones that rely more on electric power rather than burning diesel fuel uh, would be a big move. Uh, And that's kind of needs to happen sooner than later rather than just banning cruise ships outright. How easy would you say that is to start using electric cruise ships? Would there have to be a bit more research into it, or do we have the ideas and the models ready already? I mean, I don't think the technology is there yet. It could be incentivized by charging cruise lines uh, for using older technology. You could charge cruise lines by the amount of pollution they create, uh, and that would create a financial incentive for them to more rapidly adopt technologies that reduce those emissions. Um, But as it is, a single cruise ship can cost upwards of $2 billion. Uh, So there's a significant investment already in the existing technology. So unless we have some reason for cruise lines to investigate other technology, they're happy just keeping things the way they are. That was University of Auckland lecturer Timothy Welch speaking on the environmental impacts of cruise ships. We'll be back after a break. Tame Palala? Tame Palala. Is it Tame Impala? Tame Impala. Are we on? Yeah. Enough said, my friend. Free tickets, you say? Well, I've said too much, haven't I? You didn't say that, but there are free tickets. What? I don't know. Look, just between you and me, tune into 95BFM Drive this week, listen for the signal... 
Text your B card number and my man Johnny will sort you out. Nice? Nice. 95BFM presents Hame Impala with support from Ladyhawk. Saturday, October 15th at Spark Arena. Tickets from Ticketmaster. You've heard the Dunedin sound, now taste the Dunedin taste. Iconic Scarfy Burger joint Reburger has arrived in Auckland and we're celebrating by giving away a gourmet burger combo every weekday on 95BFM Drive. Just listen in every weekday evening from 4 to 7 and when you hear the dinner gong, text in for your chance to win. The Dinner Gong, thanks to Reburger, only on 95BFM. Hi there, this is the Youth Market and you're listening to 95BFM. I drive my car up to the lake as if there's someone to awake. I haven't been to bed for days, I live in a twilight pace.
That was Heartache by the Violent Femmes, and just before that was the classic Thinker Pops by Garage Land. The Labour Party was one of many to criticise the National Party's policy announcements of minimising welfare for youth and focusing on pushing them into work. However, the Auckland Action Against Poverty Group has called out the government for their own actions of sanctioning those on the benefit. They claim Labour has cut benefits of around 4,000 people who aren't well, are injured or are living with a disability in the past five years. To learn more, I spoke to Brooke Stanley Powell from the organisation about their frustrations. She started by going into more detail about the government's actions against those on welfare. Well, recent statistics show that they've been sanctioning people living with disabilities and medical conditions over the past five years. So around 4,000 people have been sanctioned. So that can either be a reduction in your benefit or removal of your whole benefit. And that's um, if you're not meeting obligations, if you're not showing up um, for work courses that they might put you in, um, if you're not answering your phone or you kind of stop communications, um, if you're failing to meet obligations with them. Um, We know, though, that they also sanction people who aren't living with disabilities or have medical conditions as well. It's a very normal practice at work and income, actually. What are the reasons that the government are placing these sanctions on people underneath welfare? So, um, as I mentioned before, it's failing to meet obligations. So, in order to receive your benefit, you have to kind of um, attend certain workshops that they might put on for you in order to prepare you for work. You might have to keep in communication with your case manager. Um, You might have to provide documentation to ensure that you can keep receiving your benefit. Um, If you fail to comply with what they're asking for, then they can sanction you. Labour, actually successive governments have used this as a tool to kind of force people or coerce people into becoming ready for work. Um, And if you don't kind of comply with what they're asking for, then they can reduce your benefit up to 50% or they can remove it altogether. Why might people be missing these obligations? Um, There are a whole bunch of reasons why people um, might not turn up for work seminars. Uh, They might not find them meaningful. They might be busy. Um, Often people have young children that they need to take care of and that's not considered to be work within the system. 
which in our opinion, that's some of the most important work. Um, you know, people living with disabilities and have medical conditions, they, their well-being might not be 100%. Um, and so <clears throat> I heard Carmel Sipiloni talking the other day about how they're using this practice as kind of a tool to help people meet their aspirations. And I don't know how forcing people into doing something that they don't want to do or isn't kind of aligned with their own aspirations. Like whose aspirations are we talking about here? Are we talking about the people that we're supporting or we're talking about Labor's aspirations for people? Because those are two very different things. Labor has been very critical of recent about their calls to cut down on welfare and push people further into work. How has this developed with the issues that you guys have seen with their own pushing of welfare restrictions? Yeah. I mean, like I mentioned, like forcing people into work, because often the work and the jobs that people, that MSD are offering through work and income are um, low paid and therefore low valued. Um, and so often these jobs aren't meaningful and, and we find that people are working actually, but it's work that I mentioned earlier, the society doesn't recognise as being work, like caring for your children, raising children, caring for um, sick people and your family, like volunteering in your community, people being able to choose what they want to do with their own lives and their own power, we think is way more important and way more sustainable in terms of um, you know, keeping people active. Um, and it also kind of is a way of preparing for a just transition. Um, if we can identify what essential work is required in our communities, and it's working with local communities as well to figure out what it is, then kind of we can all carry each other and make sure that everybody's looked after. Um, because we can't actually, I don't know if people realise that the government realises we can't continue to be... We can't continue to be upholding a capital, a colonial capitalist system. It's literally on the brink of collapse. And so what are we doing now to prepare ourselves in order to move into something um, that's more whole, that's more connected, um, and that actually where people feel empowered. How much freedom do people who are trying to move into these government-applied jobs have to choose their careers and choose the way that their life goes? Yeah, there's not a lot of choices, actually. Um, kind of you get given a um, a case manager and they, they'll they work with you to figure out what you want, but you don't get a choice to study if you want to study. Um, you don't really get a choice in the types of work that you, that you want to do. They kind of offer you a range of jobs that are available and you have to choose from them. So there's not a lot of freedom in this space. On the ground, what are the practical effects of these sanctions on those on the benefit? On the ground, if you're being sanctioned, if 50% of your benefit is being reduced or your whole benefit is cut, then it's kind of like, what are people... I don't know what MSD think when they're cutting people's benefits, when they're already below the poverty line, how they expect people to live. They can't pay their rent. They can't pay for food. They, first of all, it stresses people out. It really stresses people out because it's like people are living day to day often um, and often they're thinking about mainly it's housing insecurity. Am I going to be picked out of my house? Am I going to be homeless like in a week or so? Um, and I, Am I going to be able to get food 
or feed my kids? <clears throat> Am I going to be able to pay for um, power? Am I going to be able to yeah, get around? Um, I mean, I think for those of us who are working and who have money to be able to do these things, we kind of take these things for granted, right? We don't think about, oh, what if your, all your money gets cut? It's, it's, initially, it's, it's essentially that what happens when those of us who are working, we don't get paid anymore. Like what would happen to us as well if that happens? Um, yeah, we don't, and people living on a benefit, they often don't have, I mean, you essentially cut everybody's choices, right? Um, what changes do you think need to be made to the system? I think we need to change the whole system, to be honest. And uh, I think we need constitutional transformation. Um, we need to move towards Mati Um I think within the welfare space, because it's, we're not just experiencing issues in the welfare space, we're experiencing issues across this whole system. And that's because it's been designed in a way that it's disconnected. Um, so we need a system, yeah, that's been kind of envisioned for us, that's been set out in Mati Kemai. In the welfare space, we'd like livable incomes for all. We want universal services. We want all sanctions to be removed from the welfare space. And we want individualised income support. So at the moment, if you're in a relationship, um, what your partner gets will impact whether or not you're eligible for income support. Um, so we want all these things to be removed so that essentially people in communities can choose what they want to do with their own lives and their own power. That was Brooke Stanley Powell from Auckland Action Against Poverty chatting about benefit cuts. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hotaka katoa mō tēnei wiki, nai te mihi ki a koto katoa i korero mai ki ao mō That is a wrap on the Friday Wire. Thank you to those who spoke to us today. City Councillor Pippa Coombe, Auckland Action Property Group's Brooke Stanley Powell and Michelle Lloyd from Stats NZ. And thank you to Anna Roy from Animal Charity Safe and Auckland University lecturer Timothy Welch. Thank you very much, David, for your work today. Thank you for having me. Neira hoki te mihikia ana. Thank you for tuning in today. If you miss anything, all of those interviews will be podcasted on 95bfm.com or you can find a lot of them on Apple Podcasts. Ka hoki mai matoa i wiki. Next up is Land of the Good Groove. You are listening to 95BFM. was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.